Hello and welcome to the Drunken Comedian Podcast. However, the wily-eyed bunch amongst you may have noticed that this is no ordinary episode, as I would like to create this brand new section, a bonus podcast once a month. It's called The Caffeinated Comedian. Hit it. Caffeinated Comedian Caffeinated Comedian Yeah So, welcome to the first ever Caffeinated Comedian. So, um, we have a fantastic guest today. She is called Laura Lex and she is a fantastic comedian and comper. She's just been uh, nominated for Best Compare by Chortle uh, for the second year in a row. And we discussed that in the podcast as well uh, before the nomination happened. But uh, yeah, so uh, a little bit of background of why I'm doing the, the Caffeinated Comedian. As you may have noticed so far uh, on Drunken Comedian that we haven't been absolutely hammered too much. And this has been a, a common, not complaint, but a bit of feedback I've got. And it is difficult to book some of the bigger comedians to do uh, to get drunk with me <laughs> for free uh, on a night out. So, uh, so instead of having a night out with some people, and also some comedians don't drink as well. So, without leaving these people out, I decided to create a new section of the show called Caffeinated Comedian, where I have a sit down, have a chat with someone in the morning, and then. Um, it's a nice way to kind of uh, just have, a, uh, still have the interview, have a bit of banter, but um, just a different frisson. Uh, is that the right word? I'm not sure. Um, I just have a different kind of uh, chemistry. Uh, but essentially, it's a bonus podcast for you guys uh, with uh, some really cool people. I have some really nice uh, uh, people lined up um, who I shall keep quiet on the hush-hush. If you follow us on social media, you might be able to find out first. But, um, uh, who said that? I don't know. But anyway, uh, I shan't keep you. This is the fantastic Miss Laura Lex. Caffeinated. Comedian. Yeah. Hello and welcome to the Drunken Comedian Podcast. We want to welcome the fantastic Laura Lex, everyone. Hello. How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. It's uh, lovely <laughs> to talk to you this morning over teas and coffees. Uh, mm. uh, what are you drinking this morning? Tea. Oh, Always lovely. tea. Uh, well, how many, do you have sugars? Or? No. <laughs> that was very <laughs> informative. Uh, you, you were ready to slam me down. Um, and uh, I'm currently drinking tea with soy milk. So uh, living the oh. dream. You know, uh, this is what vegans have to do to survive now. <laughs> It's my only, my only happiness I have in my life. Uh, and uh, you said you were up all night at podcasting or editing podcasts. Yeah, I was. I do a movie trivia quiz podcast. So I was up last night editing a new episode of that, ready for release next week. Fantastic. And what's it called? Cine Mastermind. I, I see it on Twitter all the time. And uh, you have a great lineup of comedians on there, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been trying sort of... Uh, Trying to get people that have a real passion for movies, because it's quite a tough quiz. The idea of it was to have a fairly difficult movie quiz um, that spawned anecdotes and chat about the film industry, but without it just being a chat. So it's quite a competitive quiz. And then when I'm on the road gigging, like uh, generally as a comedian, if you're away for the weekend, you're in a hotel Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. So you're all kicking about Friday, Saturday, daytime, wondering what to do. So I started roping those people into sitting <laughs> in my hotel room doing a quiz about movies. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you, uh, you bring up loads of really good points there. Because the thing is, with being a comedian, you spend most of your night times working, uh, but you haven't got that much to do during the day. Because uh, you, uh, you don't really do that many uh, daytime gigs, unless it's comedy club for kids. But um, yeah, uh, it's, it's great to uh, have podcasting as a thing to do as well. Uh, it's something to fill up my time with as well. But yeah, uh, so how, how did you uh, start up the podcast and uh, how long has it been running for? 
Um, I started it because I'm part of a group of comedians called Comedian Cinema Club uh -huh. who do live shows where we reenact a film in under an hour. Yeah. Um, and the live shows are quite mad, very improvised, uh, lots of chaos and shenanigans and, and uh, very loose, loose improv. Uh um, and that's been running in LA, Edinburgh and London for the last couple of years and I wanted to bring it to Brighton so we'll be starting it at Comedia uh, on the 25th of January um, and as part of that the rest of the club we sort of said right let's get a podcast going uh, alongside the Brighton nights um, so I was trying to think of something to do and I personally love pub quizzes and trivia and I'm not, while I love sort of doing cinema club, I'm not a film buff in the way that a lot of people are. So I thought, <laughs> what can I do where I don't necessarily need to be an expert? And I thought hosting a yeah. quiz <laughs> lets me ask lots of questions, have really interesting chats, but without necessarily having to be a font of knowledge myself. Oh, that's really cool. Um, uh, I, I used to be a, a pub quiz master as well. But I used to, uh, there's movie quotes around where I had to read out movie quotes. Uh, yeah. It was one of the best moments of my week because I was just like, I, I used to use my uh, acting degree just like, I can do this. I can, uh, this is the one time a week my acting degree was actually worthwhile. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I've done one movie quotes bit, but because I'd picked fairly obvious quotes, I was trying really hard not to read them in yeah. the style yeah. to try and sort of screw it up. It's really hard not to read it in that rhythm of the quote. And you have to really subdue your passions. You have to be really yeah. like, uh, it's like, you shall not pass. Who said that? Yeah. <laughs> you shall not pass. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, when I'm doing the answers round, I really go into it. Like I get like method. I'm like, okay, let's do this. I'm Aragorn, mm. let's do this. Um, but yeah, uh, but we, we've chatted uh, um, a lot about podcasts in the past. Well, I say a lot, but uh, uh, do you have any favourite podcasts that you listen to? Oh. oh, yeah. I listen to so many podcasts. Yeah. Um, what do I particularly love? Well, one of my favourites is a podcast called Trivial Warfare, which is a straight-up pub quiz. It's a couple of guys from Florida. Mm -hmm. um, it's been running for a couple of years, I think. I very rarely get the answers right because it's quite America-biased, <laughs> but I, I think they're really good at it. They're really friendly, really chilled out. So I love that one. I love The Power Pod, which has just come back for season oh, three. Yeah. I think you listen to that one too, oh, don't you? Like, massively. Like yeah. That. I'm such a big fan. Like, I, I actually I geeked with Barry Dodds the other day, and I had to like just had to like like really quell my uh, my because yeah. I, I was an open spot at a Spiky Mike gig, and uh, Spiky Mike is a promoter uh, in like the Midlands. And the thing is, I was like really nervous because I was on the bill of him, and I was like, I have to impress Barry Dodds. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, I had a very similar thing when I first met Ray Peacock, um, or Ian Bordsworth as he's now known, because uh, we'd been on the circuit together for years, but never met, I don't think. And then I met him after I was quite heavily into the Parapod, and you know when you sort of binge on it, and yeah. it was all I'd listened to for about a week, and then he turned up at a gig, and I was trying really hard not to be too fanny, yeah. so I thought, oh, just be cool about it, and then I met him a couple of weeks later, and I said to him, oh, I was trying really hard not to be um, like a complete <laughs> fangirl about it, and he was like, oh, well, you did really well, I thought you were a bit of a dick, because you just <laughs> completely ignored me, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was the only way I was not going to be like, oh my god, I love what you do, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that one. I really love um, My Dad Wrote a Porno is very good as well. Yeah. Uh, I like the Friday night one from the BBC. I like the news quiz. Um, Private Eyes podcast is great. Uh -huh. The I can't remember what it's called. Episode something or other. I can't remember what it's called, but that's really good. Um, I like a lot of the true crime ones as yeah. well. Um, yeah, oh, I listen to so many. I've just got into a Harry Potter one. <laughs> <laughs> but there is so many to choose from, and like it's so uh, it's so hard to dedicate all your time to it as well. So, for um, example, I love uh, listen to comedians comedian podcast, and I had yeah, I, well, I had a very similar experience to uh, uh, with you and Ray Peacock, and uh, I was interviewing uh, Stuart uh, for this podcast, and it was really weird because I, I, I he was in my like visual because uh, usually I'm, I'm listening to it yeah. and very silent but it was weird to engage with him in that way. I listened to quite a lot of comedians comedian ones and then I found that 
I was a bit too influenced by what people were saying sometimes. Yeah. So I'd listen to an interview, and if I really liked them and liked what they said, I'd very much start looking at the way I was approaching comedy and wonder if I'd got it wrong or something. So I've toned down how much I listen to that one now, and I really only listen to it quite selectively yeah. because, yeah, I I try and I don't want to be too. Um, too influenced. Uh, but I think that's a, that's a really bold decision as well because I, um, yeah, I think uh, it's particularly because uh, I'm like, a, I'm, at the moment, I'm like an open mic comedian going to like, uh, like middles and stuff like that. And I realise I'm very impressionable because like when I first started doing stand-up, I watched a lot of Louis C.K. And if you watch my earlier routines, I was just trying to be Louis C.K. Mm. I mean, and uh, it's, it's more, and as much, uh, I, I love the, the Comedians Comedian podcast because it's, does help you help someone like in my position help uh, get along their way, but equally it's um it it is uh yeah say it's, it's kind of it kind of gets rid of me a little bit uh not not intentionally but it means like that I I'm trying to be like someone else when I should be a bit more uh myself yeah. yeah I also find with work ethic it does that you'll listen to the way somebody got started or somebody's approach to booking gigs or um going to gigs or how they write material and I suddenly will panic about that and personally I'm not the strongest sit down and write type comedian mm. uh, I do do it and I force myself to do it and good stuff does come out of it but it's not my natural way to write stuff and I tend to write a little bit and then illustrate it on stage and work it out on stage and I'll sit down and listen to somebody with a different approach and really panic that I'm doing it wrong yeah, and I it. don't necessarily think there is a wrong so I, I don't really want to hear that too much anymore I think a bit of it's quite good because it pushes you to be better but you have to be quite careful with it definitely um, and uh, you, you kind of mentioned about uh, building shows and how you write material uh, well firstly are you going to Edinburgh this year are you, are you doing any Edinburgh shows uh, I won't be doing a solo stand-up show this year, uh -huh. um, but I will possibly be taking Cinemastermind that for a be, live version. That'd be great, yeah. Because uh, I was talking to Mark Simmons, uh, who is a, a one-liner comedian and uh, in Kent, and he um, uh, he usually does solo shows, but uh, in 2016 he just took up a uh, Punnel show, which is like a, a pun-based panel show. Mm. Was that with Sean Walsh? Uh, he did his other show with Sean Walsh as right. well. And he said he had a really lovely time because he wasn't as stressed out with the solo show and he was just doing two fun projects. So uh, Yeah. And that, well, uh, I spoke to my agent about it and said, I have taken up two solo shows now, Lovely and Tyrannosaurus Lex. Yeah. Um, I really liked both of them at the time of doing them. And then... Uh, when I took up Tyrannosaurus Lex, I realised how much stronger a show it was than Lovely. Mm -hmm. And it's made me realise I never want to take up another show that I don't think is at least that good. And I just don't have that kernel of an idea this year like I did with Tyrannosaurus Lex. So I don't want to take up something for the sake of it. I think it's a waste of money. It's a waste of people's time. And I don't think it's necessary to flog yourself going up every year. Especially not when nine times out of ten these shows just get disposed in September, and it's yeah. such a waste of resources and your time. It is. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a massive struggle to kind of get up and running as well. And uh, as I say, if you don't have that kernel, uh, it might be difficult to kind of do it. But uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's. I have to say, your your first two shows, Lovely and Tyrannosaurus Lex, uh, they were both fantastic, uh, and they were both yeah. they, 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 they were great. <laughs> I, I remember um, I, I bumped into you in Edinburgh 2015 because I was working at Sea Venues that year, and I was like it was, I was like halfway through the fringe, and I just bumped into you outside of the stand too, I think, and um, but yeah, I'll go and see your show, and uh, it was it was lovely, and oh, I, I just I was hooked on Laura Lex at that point. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, ah, yeah, I, li I liked Lovely. I just, um, it, it, yeah, I, I loved the show. It was exactly what I wanted my first hour to be, which yeah. was I was really sure I didn't want to use any of the material I'd had on the circuit with me. So I wrote the whole thing from scratch. It didn't have any ah. sort of stuff brought forward for it. Um, 
And then when I came to doing Tyrannosaurus Lex, I wanted very different things. So one of the big bits of feedback I got out of Lovely was that it didn't have a high enough gag rate. And I was okay with that because it was quite storytelling and it was literally a lovely show. Yeah, yeah. But then when I came to doing Tyrannosaurus Lex, they thought, right, okay, I want to prove something different now. I want this to be packed with jokes. So I sat down and wrote that in a very different way where I wrote it out by hand and every single line on the A4 page had to have what I would consider a punchline somewhere in it. So it had to have a very high gag rate. So that's two very different approaches to uh, writing Edinburgh shows as well. That's, that's fascinating because uh, the lovely is more of like uh, the storytelling and more um, free, free form, but with the Tyrant, uh, Tyrannosaurus Lex, it's more boom, 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 gag rate. But yeah, that's, that's a great, uh, that's very two diverse things. I'm not sure if I'd be able to do such a diverse range of jokes because like, uh, I find it difficult to, to really find punchlines like, I've, I've, uh, because I'm more like a, a slow storyteller, so to speak. So uh, that's it's great that you really force yourself to kind of write down those, uh, get that the gag rate high as well, and it definitely paid off because uh, um, with T Lex, uh, it was. It was <laughs> I abbreviated it because uh, I kept on saying Tyrannosaurus uh, wrong too many times, but uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was it was a great show as well. And uh, uh, I, there were so many points in your second show where I uh, I went away and was like, that's so true because uh, because uh, <laughs> you have a bit about how guys um, they they sit down on the beds and put on their socks and kind of look off in the distance, and that's happened to me about like twenty times <laughs> in seeing your show. <laughs> well, I. It's, it's difficult really because most of my life for the last couple of years have been getting married and being a comedian and I don't think writing stuff about being a comedian is very accessible to the average person because we have such stupid lives and anything you have to moan about being a comic, it's not that bad is it? It's it's such a lovely job and such a privilege to do it's very difficult for me personally to find stuff that works with my persona um, and makes people laugh so I've wanted to talk about my marriage quite a lot mm -hmm. but I don't like really horrible stuff about partners I find it really and it's me being sensitive and a complete bright and liberal <laughs> idiot but I don't like listening to people slate their partners I find it just horrible and I know it's joking I know it's not real nobody hates their husband or wife and gets up on stage and goes oh thank god I can finally be honest but I, I don't want there to be a nasty kernel to stuff like that. So when I've been doing material about my husband, I've tried quite hard to make it from a loving place so I can moan about the stuff that's difficult, but without hating him in the jokes, I yeah. hope. Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, firstly, it's a it's a nice angle to have. So it's like it's back, It's like a loving moan towards the partner, uh, but also it really works well with your persona as well. And because uh, mm. uh, um, you, uh, I saw the show in November because you came down to Rochester, uh, one of my gigs, yeah. to do it. And uh, I was I was it was so refreshing to well, it was, it was the second time I saw it, and it was so refreshing because it was just it was a very lovely show as well. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> Like, pardon the pun, uh, but yeah, it was just, it was just really, it was like, oh, this is, this is really sweet, you know what I mean? It was, it was very endearing as well. Uh, yeah. My uh, persona can't be cross or horrible about things very easily. That's something that's taken me a long time to work out, and it makes joke writing a two-part thing for me, because I think jokes necessarily have to have a sort of, um critical element to them in some way or a lot of jokes do not all of them but um so when i write material if there is a kind of negative angle to it i have to write the joke then back work it so that my persona or me is excited about it but pointing out a perceived negative that i don't necessarily believe in yeah. if that makes sense so um like I've just written a couple of jokes about uh, visiting my sister who's moved to the middle of nowhere in Inverness um, and uh, the jokes are sort of about how rural it is and where it is so one of them for example is they've they've moved up there for the view and I think that will really pay off once they get the windscreen wipers installed on the house <laughs> and uh, obviously 
I'm trying to point out that it's wet and it's rainy and it's a bit like, oh my God, why would you live here? But I have to find a way that Laura on stage is delighted for her sister, loves everything about it and is finding a positive way to point out the negative yeah. because otherwise when I get angry on stage it sounds I think because I'm too posh to be <laughs> sweet when I'm angry about so it's something about it doesn't work and I have to find that way to just, just be super excited and Californian about it and then kind of suggest the negative through exuberance it's like a little bit like passive aggressiveness it's like oh yeah. this is really lovely uh, and it's it's yeah and it definitely... it's the same way i do my emceeing really it's oh why are you such a dick of it <laughs> you you kind of the two come with each other so there's a big smile on my face and i'm going how have you i'm trying to like you why are you making it hard <laughs> is the general theme of my audience interaction yeah I'll come back to your comparing in a second, but I remember um, well, what, what very similar to my persona as well, because I think I'm on stage and quite a likable person, hopefully, yeah. and I'm quite bubbly and quite, I think I'm quite optimistic and like, let's, let's get the, let's just book tea on myself. Uh, <laughs> it's all over my I really thoughts. saw that slip out of the yeah. cup. <laughs> Uh, podcast listeners, uh, I am very wet, but it's okay. Um, I like to be quite engaging, quite uh, hyperactive on stage. Uh, the thing is, like, when uh, an audience isn't going for it, or they, uh, uh, if it's like, if I've kind of derailed the gig, uh, and it happens sometimes, uh, 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 very occasionally I get to use the card of like, because uh, I'm quite a nice guy, and then I go, oh, I really hate you guys, and it gets to usually gets quite a nice laugh because it's juxtaposing to what I'm usually saying because I'm usually yeah. like yay but uh, the, the, there is one time uh, quite recently when I said oh I totally hate you guys and to absolute silence because <laughs> they were uh, a young farmers gig uh, in North Yorkshire which hated the whole night so that was uh, good was, but you know it's, right. it's fine but uh, uh, you were nominated for uh, best compare uh, recently well last year right yeah last year yeah, yeah it was. that's amazing congratulations uh, thank you and uh, I've seen you compare lots as well because uh, uh, you do a lot of stuff for University of Kent uh, sometimes yeah. as well and uh, so I just wanted to ask you about uh, uh, comparing uh, well firstly how do you find it different from uh, doing a normal act if, if there is a difference? Um, it's getting increasingly different, but that's because my material is changing, I think. Uh -huh. um, I don't really usually see comparing as much different to doing a set, and quite often I prefer it, to be perfectly honest, uh -huh. because you get longer with the audience, you get more time to build stuff, so it kind of can ferment. Whatever you've laid the groundwork for in the first section gets time to to build with the audience. So by the time you come out for the second time, they really think they know you, especially if you've got a very friendly persona. Mm -hmm. um, and you just get more chance to play. And then being a regular compare, like I have quite a few gigs now that I do three times a year. Uh, so as soon as I step on the stage, they're very relaxed and they know me because I'm there so often. Yeah. So you get that feeling that you don't have to do that. I'm from Somerset. Here's my opening gags. Here's how to get to know me. You can jump straight in with like more advanced stuff. Every now and again, I really wish I was doing a 20 instead of, yeah. you know, bantering with the crowd yeah. because there'll be such a nice audience that I think I want to do that bit about politics or that bit about the environment or that bit about that that won't go into comparing and would, would be doing my job badly if I did it when I was comparing. But really, I love it. And people that look down on it and or not look down on it but I think people dismiss the compare and it's getting better but there's so many times on the bill where people all congratulate all the actors they come yeah. off and completely ignore you if you're comparing because you're just working for them and you kind of think well yeah I am but I'm also a comic yeah yeah and it's um it, it's I think it's such a, a good skill to have as well because uh, if, if you can uh get that skill of really engaging with the audience, making, uh, getting your uh, bantering good and also just uh, creating a great atmosphere as well. It makes uh, makes life so much easier when you're on stage as well. Uh, and it's, it's getting to the point for myself where I, uh, I, uh, I'm kind of, 
I prefer doing comparing because uh, it's more of a uh, an event, if you know what I mean. If I'm mm -hmm. doing material, it's a bit like here's A, here's B, here's C. But uh, it's uh, with comparing, it's like anything can happen, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, I think it helps you glue your set together in a way because you understand who you are in between the jokes. So I've never particularly had a set 20 or a set 10 of these are, this is my 10, it goes in this order because I've always done such a big mix of comparing and stuff. I'm quite good at throwing in jokes when I think they're needed. Um, but I think on the flip side of that, sometimes you do have to be careful that if you do a lot of comparing mm -hmm. and then go back into doing a 20, you do have enough material and do enough material to make it different from what the compare's done. Because I think sometimes you either make the compare's job very difficult or you don't give the audience enough variety. If you go out to do a 20 and do an awful lot of audience interaction as part of it, I think you have to have a marked difference. Yeah, and it's... Um... I feel like if you're doing material and it's a lot of crowd work, it feels like you're kind of stepping on the compare's toes a little bit as well. It feels like, well, I shouldn't be talking as much to the crowd. But yeah. I think just sometimes it can get repetitive and depending on the size of the room, you can alienate people <laughs> who aren't involved. You, There are some rooms sometimes where they'll you're talking to someone in the front row and people at the back assume that this isn't really part of the gig and switch off to a certain extent so you have to include everybody yeah that is uh that's very interesting stuff uh and uh famously you were had to deal with a heckler in brighton uh, uh did you want to tell us the story Ah, oh, to be honest this, this video sort of makes me laugh quite a lot because um I get heckled like that all the time. So if you haven't seen the video, and for the love of God, don't go and find it. Um, it, it literally, I was comparing at a gig in Brighton and I said, hello, is everybody happy to be here? And one man said he was miserable. When I asked him why he was miserable, he said he was expecting a male comedian. Um, and so I sort of dealt with him, really, like I would do at any other gig. And I get heckled all the time with stuff like that. Uh, so to me it wasn't a massive deal but because uh, I happen to be at Brighton Comedia where they um, record all the gigs and it's fairly good quality uh, I had video evidence of it and when I'd got home from that gig I'd posted a Facebook status about it not really being negative but just sort of saying why do people think it's okay to say stuff like that? Like, it just, you know, I've, I've just done a little status and a couple of people really pissed me off by going, oh, you're a comic, you should be able to deal with that. And I thought that was interesting because they'd seen me having something to say about it and assumed I hadn't been able to deal with it. So I posted the video to my Facebook page thinking, oh, well, this will just show people... Um, I, I did deal with it. Yeah. I wasn't a quivering wreck when someone shouted something at me. And it really took off. It, it sort of caught people's attention, I think, um, which was interesting. But honestly, that and people go, how do you deal? How did you deal with that? That guy was really rude. And actually, at least twice a month, someone shouts lesbian at me before really? I've reached the microphone. Oh, my God. People shout stuff at me all the time. Just yes. took your pants off or whatever. It's because I'm a small-looking girl and I have yeah. short hair and I mentioned that I'm from Brighton and so people think lesbian's an insult and yeah. then I tell them it's not really that insulting. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and I just don't really care what they shout at me. I, I just don't care. It's, uh, I find it so astonishing that it happens on such a regular basis as well. That's awful. Uh, it's it, it's sad to hear, especially obviously uh, not to uh, typecast anywhere, but like I can't believe it happened in Brighton as well, uh, of all places. But yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the thing is that people get drunk at comedy nights, and people go to comedy nights for the first time, and they think they genuinely think that that's part of it. Um, and I think, like, especially when somebody shouts lesbian at me or something, they really expect me to be insulted or to join in with some bawdy homophobia. Yeah. I don't think they... I mean, I don't even know what I think, but... I mean, people say, how, how do you deal with that? I can't believe people do that, but they do it to me in a comedy club. They don't do it to me on the street like other people get. Yeah. Why would you be surprised that a drunk guy in a club 
you know, wants to shout stuff at me based on my haircut and my fashion choices when somebody, you know, wearing stuff for religious reasons in the street will get shouted at when they haven't put themselves in the public eye. I've at least invited commentary on who I am by picking up a microphone. Mm -hmm. It's the easiest place in the world to get abuse shouted at you because I'm cleverer than them I've got more experience dealing with it than them and I'm protected by the environment I'm in I'm a hell of a lot safer than if I was a woman wearing something somebody took offense to in the street well yeah you make some uh, very salient points and uh, I feel very guilty as a white male man now <laughs> But no, it's not helpful no. to, to feel guilty or to blame no. an environment because I think white women are just as likely to shout stuff at me uh, or any kind of colour, height, I... nationality person. If you're an idiot, you're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with, I... with generally, with your skin colour. Some I... people are just dicks. <laughs> I think uh, if you're an idiot, you're an idiot is, uh, is the quote for, <laughs> for 2017. You know, it's... Uh, it's a synopsis. Um, I've had a couple of incidents recently where um, I, I have a bit where I talk about when I was 16, I, I considered being homosexual for a bit. Uh, uh, and uh, and it's it's because I've been doing loads of gigs in the Northeast recently and I've got like a really weird response for it. Like, uh, uh, mm -hmm. there's like, uh, again, it's like uh, I have, I realized I have kind of invited uh, that discussion, but people get a bit like, like, uh, not. Not, I wouldn't say homophobia, but a bit like, oh, you know, uh, uh, sorry, that wasn't a very uh, apt description, but uh, it was more people kind of get a bit angsty about it, and uh, uh, they start, like, like sh there's people shouting out, like, stuff like gay and stuff like that, I was like, well, if you let me finish off the story, maybe I can, like, explain it to you mm. a little bit. But, uh, yeah. It's, I think uh, homophobia is one of the most interesting things in comedy. It's so prevalent, I think, and in a lot of jokes. Uh... Like, what, with that video, with the heckler video, I had a few accusations of homophobia thrown at me because the guy said I was expecting a man and my initial response was, oh, sweetheart, sounds like your love life or something along those lines, <laughs> which is not my favourite comeback because it can be interpreted as being homophobic like that and that is just not my style yeah. at all or something I dislike and I'd hate to throw any weight behind anybody ugh, believing that things like that are important but the more I sat down and thought about that and I think about that you watch I think homophobia within comedy really ex well doesn't exist but is used I don't even know where I'm going with this, to this bit. <laughs> I don't know I, yeah, I find it fascinating and, and when I watch like you watch gay comics a big amount of comedy a really common trope I think is to come on to somebody of the same sex to get a laugh and people really do laugh because whilst you might not actively dislike gay people or something like that it there is something about it that makes people laugh your shows you have fantastic bits about feminism and when you're creating jokes would you do you start off with an initial idea of what you want to talk about or do you just talk about stuff what's on your mind how do you go about like writing like jokes for your uh, routines i really write jokes based on what's most likely to win me an award <laughs> uh, <laughs> i've looked at the last few years and gone do you know what i'll pretend i give a shit about women yeah. and that that really helps um, <laughs> it's a mixture really I think mostly with the shows I put the funniest stuff in but there is a little element with an Edinburgh show that I think ah oh, do you know what I'm going to talk about something a bit heavier because I can because I can't do it in a lovely club on a weekend and I can't do it at a young farmers event in Yorkshire <laughs> so while I'm there at two o'clock in an afternoon in Edinburgh and people have come to see my show at two o'clock knowing it's an Edinburgh show I will do some stuff that won't see the light of day again because it's too wordy or it isn't what people want on a Saturday night. Um, I, I, I think my approach to comedy is, I think it's an art and I think there's, uh, yeah, I, th I, th I think comedy is an art, but 
Once you accept money for doing your art, I think you accept a contract. So while yeah. I think if it's funny enough, it could go in a Saturday night, when I turn up to a club, my aim is not to be true to anything that I think I am as a comic. My aim is to entertain the people who have paid me to entertain them. Mm -hmm. And so that means personally, I take a different approach to an Edinburgh show where people have trusted me to decide what will entertain them in that hour to people who have bought into buying a ticket for a club where there is an ethos of what will be in there. You've made such a great point. And uh, I, my, I did a master's thesis uh, in terms of uh, if stand-up comedy can create change. And the ending part is uh, talking about artists versus entertainers in terms of mm. I, I created a, an idea that um, it's a spectrum. So uh, you, you could be an entertainer like Jimmy Carr, or you can be more of an artist like uh, Stuart Lee. And uh, it's, it's a spectrum between where you fall. And club gigs are more of the entertainment side. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, and they, they can be different. I think yeah. if you turn up to a club and, you know, I have a couple of really short jokes about feminism or about uh, environmental stuff that, that um, if they go down well, there's more of it I can do. But I think you have to be sure that that's what they want. Yes, because definitely. I just think the average person at a comedy club has paid 15 quid for a taxi to get there. They've paid 15 quid to get into the club. They've paid for a meal. They've paid for a babysitter. They've looked forward to this for at least a week, you know, and they, you don't want to be responsible for making that disappointing in your choice of material or the quality of material. I'm going to change the topic slightly. Uh, well, we, we kind of know each other because we did the same course at university. Yeah. Uh, not, obviously not the same year, <laughs> uh, or else I'd be very sad in myself. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, we both did uh, the fourth year Masters in Stand-Up Comedy under Dr. Oliver Double, uh, and we did Monkey Shine. And uh, I just want to talk about your origins in stand-up and uh, how, you, how you felt that uh, the comedy course helped you, or did it help you in your stand-up career? Well, I only went to Kent because I wanted to be in radio. And when I applied and got in, they had the, a fourth year option to do radio production. And then I'd been there for about six months and they cut it. And I thought, <laughs> oh, bloody hell, the hell am I going to do now? Um, so toddled through this entire course in absolutely the wrong university because it was all like Krotowski and all oh, this modern theatre that I hate. <laughs> I hid in um, in theory lessons with Daryl Grantley, yeah. <laughs> who was a really amazing lecturer. I loved him. Um, I did all his Shakespeare stuff and his stuff where I could just sit in a classroom with a book rather than having to roll around on the floor in my pants. Um, and then it sort of came to fourth year, and really for me it was a toss-up between directing and stand-up. And stand-up was the only practical one. Um, and I'd been doing improv comedy for a couple of years with the Kent improv troupe, which was called, I think it was called, I don't know what it was called when I first started doing it. And then we changed it to play it by ear. Oh. Um, yeah, so I, I'd been doing that for a couple of years anyway, um, and quite liked live comedy and liked dicking about. So I thought, <laughs> all right, I'll do the stand up module. And I'm really glad I did because I wasn't very good at it. And whenever I'm not very good at something, I decide to get good at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny because me and my husband were chatting the other day. And um, I really love admin and I love filling out forms. And I love doing simple tasks that you can tick off. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, oh, I'm wasted being a comedian. I should be someone's PA. I'd be so good at it and I'd love it. And he was like, yeah, why are you a comedian? And I literally went, oh, because I wasn't very good at it when I first started doing it and oh, I don't like not being very good at things so I just haven't stopped because I want to be good at it and then he went oh but you like it though don't you and I sort of sat there going oh, it's, it's really too late for that now isn't it because I just spent eight years doing it just because I wanted to know how to do it oh well so your whole career is based on the fact of just like uh just spite isn't it just well, yeah. yeah oh it's it's because when i'm not good at doing something i have this really bullish stupid part of me that if there's no reason why i shouldn't be good at it 
I just think, right, okay, well, be good at it then. How do you be good at this? And that doesn't exist, you know, like footballing. I'm, I'm never going to try and be a premier footballer because I'm four foot three and t- fat and terrible at running. You know, stuff that literally, no, that's past it. Now that's not going to happen. But if there's no reason why I can't do it, yeah, I, I, I don't accept that I can't do it. And so here I am at 30 with no mortgages <laughs> or future. Yay! Yeah, but I, I, I think it's actually, um, it's quite symptomatic of uh, why you're actually a comedian because it's like determination, isn't it? It's like, well, no, I can do this, so I will be a comedian. And, yeah, and, I, and I, I think it makes me focus very much on the things that I am good at. So the, the course that we did, yes. um, so most of it's theory, as you know, but part of it is uh, to do some practical gigs. And I think when I did it, you had to do... 10 gigs and you had to put in a portfolio as to what made those gigs work so it wasn't about learning to be a comic it was learning about what made comedy work so you had to assess the room assess the compare assess the other acts assess what you did why did that make it work or not work um and you had to do 10 gigs and hand the portfolio in i i did 41 because while i couldn't control whether I was any good on stage, I could control how much I practiced and how much effort I put in and how much work I did. Yeah, uh, that's great. And uh, uh, well, I, I find that very inspirational because uh, uh, Ollie, uh, Ollie Dub- Double told me uh, you had the record for like 41. And I was like, <laughs> I've got to beat that. That's my year's goal. Oh, did you beat me? Yeah, I, I did 70, uh, I think 72 in total. So, Whoa, uh, nice one. That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm trying to keep up that bang average, so to speak. Yeah, so, um, nice. Uh, I'm really proud of you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Just that hopefully, when I'm 30, hopefully I'll have no mortgage as well. But that's the dream, you know. I just want to be like you, Laura Lex. So that's, that's, that's it. <laughs> buy no mortgage. I very much mean I haven't even started buying a house, by the way. <laughs> just in case anyone was listening, like, she's paid off her mortgage. No, she can't get one. Yeah. That's, the <laughs> that's the dream, you know. <laughs> Uh, what do you think of uh, stand-up comedy courses as a general? Do you, do you reckon they're helpful for the industry, or uh, do you reckon do they help whatsoever? Did they help you? Um, I don't know because I've not been on one of the ones that's like. Uh, so you want to be a comedian? Yeah. Here you go. Here's some tutoring or training. Um, I can't see how they would hurt. If comedians are better, surely that helps the industry. Mm-hmm. I so. Off the top of my head, I can't see why they'd be damaging. Um, I'm really glad I did the master's degree, but mainly because I just find comedy fascinating. Yeah. I don't know how much it helped me be a better comic on stage, but it certainly lit a fire under me to do it and learn how to be good at it in the years afterwards. A lot of people in the comedy industry think are really negative about the number of comics working and, oh, there's too many comics, there's not enough gigs. But actually, I think competitiveness, competition, that's the word, surely that just forces a healthy ecosystem where you haven't got the thing that you had in the 90s where you had, you know, nine grand's worth of gigs available in a weekend, genuinely, for one person. And you only had 12 comics, so regardless of quality of jokes... You had work. Now, yeah, you have to scrap. You have to work really hard. You have to be really good at loads of different things. And that's difficult for people who are struggling, and that's horrible. But surely that is any workplace in a capitalist environment, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I think the great word to use is ecosystem. And it is like an ecosystem as well. A lot of uh, comedians out there, it does force you to be better. And if you want to be seen, you have to work a lot harder for it. And uh, and I, I, I say, I, I, I listen to lots of podcasts as well. And I can't remember where I heard it, but uh, it's like... Uh, there was like a 90s comedian who was like getting drunk and Larry in the in the room. I think it was Rob Beckett uh, was like, well, no, I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to have a Diet Coke because I, I want to be rebooked again. And it's just like, mm. it's, it's, it's that difference between like, a, uh, it's the different mindsets. If you know yeah, what I mean. it's a job now. And I don't know, the impression I get from people that were around well before I was is that, yeah, it was a real party for a long time and there was amazing money to be made. And I think it's sad for people that 
did start out with that incredible money and really had a future taken away from them because it didn't stay like that. But the thing I always find confusing is when people assume that now that that the industry is wrong now because it's not like that rather than accepting that it was wrong then mm -hmm. that there was too much money in it for not enough skill yeah. or you know it's always seen as because that one came first that's the way it should have been and the golden age we need to get back to rather than going that was a bubble that was always going to burst because it wasn't practical i i do find as a open mic comedian it, it from what I've heard, it's a lot harder to get uh, on stuff now than it was about 10 years ago. But equally, as you say, it's uh, although it's seen as a negative, it's also a positive as, as well. Yeah. And I, I mean, the thing with comedy is it's difficult, but <sighs> how many jobs do you go into and be the CEO yeah. within yeah. two years? H how many jobs do you get promoted every year that's not what work is yeah, and comedy's yeah. a job sadly now or brilliantly now whatever you think that is like one of the main reasons I stuck with comedy rather than going back to acting which was really my roots was that acting every time you finish a job you go back to the bottom you are looking for another part for a five foot brunette actress with blue eyes who looks like everybody else whereas with comedy every time I finished a gig I was a bit better or I had another contact or I had a new joke or I was just that little bit more experienced or I died on my ass and I'd learned from that, I don't know. But it felt more like a meritocracy than other creative yeah. um, industries. And it, I think if you keep going, you do tend to get somewhere if you get better. You won't necessarily be on TV, but I just... I think unless you love gigging every weekend and you love being on the stage, you shouldn't do it. Well, no, I don't want to say you shouldn't do it because you should You should do what you like. But <laughs> I wouldn't want to carry on doing this if I didn't like this bit and I was just waiting for the next bit. I only want to do this as long as I love the stage of it that I'm currently in. And every time I get a little bit further along and a new bit gets added, like I'm working on some script stuff or adding a podcast to what I'm doing or, you know, doing some TV warm-up, every time a new bit gets added, I love it and I'm happy to have it added, but I will always, I hope, love turning up at the Glee on a Saturday or turning up at a Young Farmers event and working out how to play that gig. Yeah. And I hope that's always the case. And when it's not... I wonder and I hope that I would be happy to move on and not be angry that I'm not further and to still be okay with what I'm doing. But, yeah. you know, I've only been doing it eight years, so who knows? I, uh, I actually remember the first ever time I, I met you because uh, it, wasn't when, it wasn't my third year. I think it was my second year. For whatever reason, you were doing a gig in... I think you were comparing uh, a show uh, at the University of Kent and I, I was like, I saw you perform, and I was like, I was like, oh my god, uh, it's it's a really awesome comedian. You did a great job as well. And and you were chatting to someone, and I had to leave. I was like, I want to chat to you, and uh, and I, I said, oh, excuse me, do you mind if I just chat to you? I asked, oh, what, uh, give me some advice uh, to be a comedian. And uh, the first thing you said was to just not be jealous of anyone on the circuit. Just just be uh, just be happy where you are. And I think that's a, uh, I've taken that ethos with me for uh, throughout my. <laughs> I say career, but not really. Uh, more. It's difficult, yeah. though, isn't it? It, it, it I find it um, uh, because I'm, I'm t I turned twenty three uh, last month, and uh, one of my things as a comedian is I I, I worked very hard. Uh, well, I did work hard, and I'm quite young, so I had in my in my wheelhouse. I always thought that, uh, but if I kept on working the same level, uh, in a couple of years' time, I should be quite good. But then I've seen people who are a lot younger than me now, who are like 20 and 19, who are amazingly good. And I'm like, <laughs> this is my one thing I had. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, I remember that. I remember being young on bills um, and then that going away suddenly. But I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't give up the experience I've got now to go back to just being young. We were talking uh, recently at a gig about uh, environmentalism, and I, I, so you're quite a big environmentalist? 
Yes. I mean, <laughs> that's relative, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> quite big. I'm very passionate about it. Yeah. Probably not terribly well informed compared to a lot of people, but um, certainly active in my efforts to change my own lifestyle. And uh, what have you done in your lifestyle uh, in terms of, if, if you want to talk about it? Uh... Yeah, no, that's fine. So I, uh, I've done very basic things. Um, so I've largely cut meat out of my diet. I'm sort of 95% vegetarian, not for moral reasons. I think it's fine to kill any animals. I think that is life and nature. I'm sorry for anybody that disagrees that that's my personal opinion. Um, but uh, I don't think the amount of meat that we eat as a species is healthy for the planet and for an ecosystem. So um, I've mostly cut that out. Um, I don't use co coffee cups and things like that. Uh, they are not recyclable in you go they're cardboard no they're polythene coated fewer than one percent get recycled there are only two processing plants in the UK that recycle those cups one of them has never ever done one and uh, the other one has done like maybe three just so Starbucks and Costa can say that they do and I think it's a baffling world where you get like we just if you threw away a glass every time you used it, people would think you were mental. Yeah. And these cups are just as sticking around as a glass cup would be even more so. Yeah. And we just don't think about it. And it's bonkers. Um, I use all Ecova cleaning products and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Uh, I don't use chemical shampoos and shower gels. I use Lush products um, yeah. and like bars of shampoo rather than bottles. Uh, and I have pretty much cut Unilever out of my life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Meridian play a big part in my existence. Uh, I have lots of things in my cupboard that look like the cheap version of that actually cost me four times the price. Um, but they don't have palm oil in, which yeah. is something that I try and avoid yeah. as much as possible. Uh, yeah, those are the big sort of household changes. Recycled toilet paper, that scared the crap. Excuse the pun, out of my husband when I told him that I really think he thought that we were literally getting someone else's loo roll. I was like, no, babe, no. <laughs> it's just made from old paper. It's fine. You won't know. I shouldn't have told you. Never yeah. mind. Um, <laughs> things like that. It's not really. So, yeah, so. those are the big, I suppose, lifestyle changes I've tried to make. But that, that, those are really, uh, you've made some great strides as well. Those are really um, uh, valiant changes as well because uh, there's some people I've met uh, who will. Uh, Mostly people who would post a lot on Facebook, like, well, we should be doing this, this, and this, and like they haven't actually done anything to change it. They just like like to preach mm. it. Uh, I think the difficult thing I think is that it scares people. Like, I literally had a conversation with someone on Sunday where I mentioned, or somebody else asked me about how I'm finding it being vegetarian, and I was like, oh, it really doesn't bother me. Yeah. I wasn't a massive meat eater anyway, um, and it. It's sort of fine, I don't really care. And some people really want to to be cross at you for it because you've made a change and they haven't. So oh, somebody yeah. said like, oh, well, why would you go at meat? It's delicious, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, it is. It's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I love meat. Yeah. And I don't think it's wrong to kill animals. I'm not like, I don't eat stuff with a face. Yeah, stuff with a face would eat me. I'll eat stuff with a face. Don't care. But it's a change I can make and she's like oh well you know but cheese and milk and stuff it's all animals isn't it and it's like yeah I'm not vegan and I would really struggle to be vegan and I might one day mm -hmm. but just because I'm not doing it perfectly doesn't mean that doing something doesn't help oh, yeah. but I think people get so hat up that unless you are literally a walking paragon of not affecting the environment, then you shouldn't try anything. And that is so stupid and backwards yeah. to me. It's, um, I'm doing a project at the moment uh, called 100X Morality. And it's about trying to make change within myself and within the world I live in. And it's, uh, I, I find so many people get angry at what I I'm trying to do, uh, for example, like the biggest thing is uh, vegetarianism and veganism. Uh, mm. Bear in mind, I come from a beef farming family as well, so uh, <laughs> uh, not massively fans of it. But uh, it's, um, it's, it, uh, yeah, I remember at university, my, and my friends used to get so, I, I think it's a defense mechanism as well, because it's like, yeah. uh, they kind of believe it's, uh, you're attacking their way of life, so yeah. like, uh, and, um, and they used to get so angry, and, uh, and I used to, and, and the thing is, I wouldn't be the one mentioning it. It would be, there were people around the table mentioning it as well uh, uh, and getting quite angry about it. But um, 
Yeah, I, I, but I think it's, um, as you say, it's uh, people have such a defeatist attitude towards it. And I'm not saying that you can make it, you're not going to save the world in 24 hours, but equally, you can make the change in your own life. You can do, yeah. the, you can do the most good that you can do. You know what I mean? But I think it's, I understand why people are defensive and defeatist about it, because I think it's scary. Mm. I think so much of your life is out of your control Definitely. and like a big thing a big project that I will be working on over the next year is um plastic in your life oh yeah where there was sort of I find it hilarious that the government have brought in all this you'll pay 10p for a plastic bag and everybody's made that change very easily and it very much punished the people. And yet you can take a canvas bag to the supermarket and you're filling it with plastic. Yeah, and you've got yeah. no choice about that. You can't take a canvas box or a, a Tupperware box and fill it up with sweet corn. Yeah. You have to take a tin. You can't take a Tupperware and fill it with pasta. You have to buy a plastic bag. So really, what is the point in taking a canvas bag to the supermarket if the supermarket isn't responsible for allowing you to take reusable items to purchase your food in? And that is nonsense. So I understand why people are defeatist and worried and like, why should I make these changes that make my life harder when none of the big stuff that sort of needs doing alongside my small changes seems to be a focus. And I think that's valid. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the, the thing is, um, as I say, part of the project, I'm trying to change different aspects of my life uh, to be as moral as possible. The, the thing is, it's like it, one, the more, it's kind of like a rabbit hole because once you go in, it, there's no stopping to it. There's yeah. No, there's 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 no maximum you can do. If you know what I mean. There's the uh, there's essentially it's not really moral to be alive at some point. If you know what I mean. Yeah. So it's like a, it's it's so it's so difficult to kind of uh, to be truly moral if that is such a thing. Yeah. yeah. The reason I got so into this is because I had a breakdown in October on these subjects and I was uh, diagnosed with depression anxiety put on antidepressants and i'm starting therapy because i'd become so obsessed with environmental stuff that i couldn't carry on with my life i was absolutely paralyzed by a complete fear that everything i did was ruining the planet to the point where i couldn't leave the house and i couldn't function as a human being and it wasn't until i opened up to somebody because also you sound nuts <laughs> if my husband had come over and gone why are you crying global warming is such a like it's such a stupid reason to give but it's not a stupid reason but it is a stupid reason and and i just thought i'm going mad this is it this is the end of my life and and luckily i'm just surrounded by beautiful people that went you're not very well you are worried about clever things but not clever things there. You, like they said, you're worried about reasonable things, but you are convinced that you're going to wake up tomorrow and need an arc. Like you're, you've taken this a little bit too far in terms of the worry. Um, so I got help, you know, and since I've been on the antidepressants, I'm still just as concerned about environmental things, but I've got the right hormone balance in my brain to deal with it properly rather than just sitting and shaking. I, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you as well. Cause, um, uh, when, when I moved back home around September, I had like a major existential crisis. I was like, well, nothing really matters, does it? We're all just yeah. ants, you know? <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's really difficult to be both existential and worried about the small things in life as well. So yep. uh, um, thank you for being very honest with us. As well. I think it's important for people to be honest. Like I was really scared when all this happened and um, wasn't sure about putting it into material because I just thought, oh, as soon as you open up about that, that's out there then and will that affect me getting work and stuff like that but I think I'm quite happy to talk about it now because I don't think a promoter in the country noticed the problem I turned up to every gig yeah. I did my job and I just think if one person because I'd always been so anti going on antidepressants because I was frightened of that changing my ability to be me on stage and my analytical mind and I didn't want anything to numb and now having been on them and just gone ah this is who I am and I needed help getting back to that same as if I broke my leg I yeah. couldn't 
fix it on my own now I fixed it and and I just I'd hate to be a part of the problem of people not getting help because it's a brain problem yeah. rather than an anything else problem so I'm perfectly happy to be like yeah I take pills to keep me me yeah. same as I would if my heart didn't work properly don't yeah. care it's fine uh, Matt Haig, who wrote the book uh, Reasons to Stay Alive, uh, had a, has a brilliantly lovely bit uh, about uh, uh, how uh, if you broke your arm, you go to see the doctor, so why would yeah. you go to the doctor to, to fix your mind? To... Did he also write A Boy Called Christmas? Yes. He... Ah, that's a re- I haven't read Reasons to Stay Alive, but I've oh. read A Boy Called Christmas. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a slightly different tone, I imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, really good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, his uh, his book is fantastic. So uh, if you get a chance to read it, it's really yeah, like, you can read it quite that. fast. It's really good. Uh, that's that's really awesome. I think we'll we'll start wrapping up now. But um, uh, just uh, as a bit more of a light-hearted topic. Uh, uh, <laughs> what more light-hearted than my total mental breakdown? What do you mean? <laughs> we'll do another twenty minutes on that. Wicked. <laughs> I haven't got 20 minutes on it yet. I'm working on the machine yeah. office. It's not funny yet. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, I did a, uh, an open mic night. Uh, I did a new material night uh, uh, on Tuesday, and it was just comedians. And uh, I, was, I got some like big topics I want to talk about. Uh, but I realised when I was on stage, and it was just two comedians, like, this isn't funny yet, is it? Yeah. <laughs> so I need to, need to work <laughs> a little bit. Um, uh, but yeah, um, but yeah, I just wanted to uh, ask, uh, since you're married to a comedian, how, how do you find that life? How do you find being married to a comedian? Uh, well, I've never been married to anybody other than a comedian. Uh-huh. So <laughs> I can't compare it, but I, I, I think it's great. Like, um, I love being married to a comedian. I think... I've, I don't understand quite how it works if you're married <laughs> to somebody who works nine to five, if uh, you're a comedian, because surely you just never see each other. Um, like I used to work and do comedy for the first three or four years of my relationship with my now husband. I worked at a shop during the day, a bar at nights I wasn't gigging, and then I gigged. So I sort of had the three jobs and I juggled it. And that's the most stressful point our relationship's ever been at because I had to get up at eight, go to work, would finish at six, either go straight to the pub or go straight to a gig. And he would gig too and he'd be at home all day and it would be a nightmare. Now, yeah, like at the moment he left 7am yesterday to go to Rotterdam and comes back from Manchester Sunday night at which point I'll be in Bristol and won't be back until Wednesday but then when we are home we are both off Monday Tuesday Wednesday two weeks out of five so um also I'm lucky because my husband is not a stand-up comedian he is an improv comedian so he doesn't work on material the same way I do he's not analytical about little things happening in your life there's no like Oh, that granny slipped over on some ice. Shotgun material dips. That's mine. No, that's mine. We're not arguing over who gets custody of the hilarious marital breakdowns that we have. He has a very different approach to comedy. Um, So there's none of that competitiveness. And he is very chilled out as a person. He's got none of the, like, uptight stand-up comedian tropes that we have, you know, yeah, the where yeah. we're a nightmare and paranoid and insecure. He's no, he's just not like that. He's just really happy all the time. <laughs> it's, it's really lovely. <laughs> I think we should be improv comedians. We should do that all the time. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I think specifically I have married, like, the world's most patient, chilled-out, a lovely individual he is i think he's particularly excellent but um it also helps i bought him a vr for christmas so he's been really nice to me <laughs> that's great wife material <laughs> yeah well that, when we got married actually when he proposed and he bought me an engagement ring and at the time i felt really uncomfortable that he had to spend all this money on a ring because of social convention and stuff so i bought him a playstation 4 <laughs> so i got an engagement ring and he got an engagement playstation <laughs> <laughs> that is the best feminist point i've ever heard in my life <laughs> it's my own weird unique brand of capitalist feminism <laughs> and uh, and you're off to australia soon Right? I'm not going actually, oh, no. Going. No, yeah. not going. They didn't want me, the bastards. It oh, fell through. No. Uh, well, uh, well, it's their loss. So, uh... <laughs> 
sure, sure. Yeah, that's what it is. No, I'm actually up to my eyes in a couple of writing projects here. So uh, when Australia fell through, uh, I was sad because I love to tick things off my list of stuff I want to do. But at the same time, I don't know if this year was the best year to go anyway. So it's kind of cool. And uh, what have we got planned for the rest of the year? Have you got any... Uh, uh, some scripts that I've been bothering people about for a few years are starting to turn into actual scripts rather than right. the musings of a mad woman. So that's a big focus for me for a couple of months. Um, gigging a lot. I'm booked up solidly until September. That's great. Uh, and then also getting Cinema Mastermind and Comedian Cinema Club running happily and healthily in Brighton. That's great. Um, well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Laura. Uh, oh, thank you for having me. I've never done a podcast like this before, so that's a, a, a tick on the milestone list. Yeah, we did it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, would you like to plug anything before you go? Um, uh, if you are in the Brighton or the South East and fancy some crazy... Um, improv comedy please come to comedian cinema club at comedia and if you get time please check out comedian cinema club podcasts if you listen to this and like podcasts uh where we do them and they're welcome thank you so much laura <laughs> thanks man And that was Laura Lex, everyone. Thank you so much. Uh, that was a really, it was really touching, funny, and very open conversation. And um, it, yeah, it, was, it was a delight to record that one. And I, I just want to say massive thanks to Laura for, for doing that. I'm actually on her podcast uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks called Silly Mastermind. And it's a... A really, really hard film quiz show. And before I went on that, I thought I was a film buff. But <laughs> when I was there, I learnt I was not. But, <laughs> yeah, it's a really funny episode. So do check out that whole series. It's called Cine Mastermind. And, yeah, um, thank you for listening and for, for downloading and for giving the first ever caffeinated comedian a shot. Please let us know what you think on iTunes. Uh, give us a, a rating and a review. That'd be really helpful. Share this with your friends. Join us on social media at DrunkComPod. And what else? Um, you can also see me uh, do live shows in and around the UK. I'm doing Glasgow Comedy Festival. I'm doing two shows at Liberty at 7.15. At 23rd, I'm doing my new show, 100 Acts Morality, which is a very, very cool, fun show. Really having a good time with it. And there's also, on the 24th, I'm doing my final ever show um, of Vegetarian Man. Um, this will be a bit more updated uh, for, for, because for, it's quite, it was quite an old show. I'm going to have to trim the fat, so to speak. So it'll be a, a little bit of new stuff in there as well. But you can buy them online at Sea Tickets. And I'm also at Rotherham Comedy Festival on the 1st of April. and doing Swindon Fringe Festival on the 4th. And uh, that's with the 100 Act show. And yes, yeah, it's, it's going like a treat. It's going like a treat. Um, yes, yeah, so you can. Uh, most of them are pay what you want or free. So please come along and check it out if you can. Anyway, uh, thanks for downloading the Caffeinate Comedian slash Drunken Comedian podcast. We'll see you very soon. Bye. Caffeinated comedian. Caffeinated comedian. Yeah.